Father God, uh, we come before you tonight and are excited to open up your word and to find out more about your plan, more about what you've revealed to us regarding uh, your ultimate plan for this world. God, I can't help but take a moment and just pray for this world right now. Um, It seems to have broken all over again in a brand new way. There is so much going on with wildfires, both on our coast, in Israel, in Turkey. There are thousands of refugees trying to escape Afghanistan right now um, as the Taliban has taken over. There are all sorts of rumors about potential battles and skirmishes and things happening out there in the Middle East near your holy place. God, I just pray that you would have your hand of control over it and bring us peace um, as we see things collapse in that region of the of the world. God, I pray for us as we open up your word tonight that we can just sense who you are, sense your peace and your authority, uh, and just give ourselves over to you uh, and experience you in a new way tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to recap, I think, before we get into uh, 17 and 18, uh, sort of what we've experienced thus far in Revelation. When you start out and you open up the book, which is something we haven't talked about in a while, you get this amazing vision of Jesus in his glorified state. And he, you know, his eyes are like lightning, his feet are furnished bronze, and it seems just this like, holy fire, raging, awesome experience that John has as he's stuck out on the island of Patmos. John is the only disciple of Jesus's who witnessed the crucifixion and the Romans, they cannot get rid of him. They've tried to kill him a couple of times. It doesn't work. So they send him out to Patmos on this island to be by himself in exile so that he can't influence anyone else in the Roman Empire. And as he's there, he gets this great vision of Jesus and he shares it. And at the end of this vision, Jesus tells him to write down the things that he has seen the things which are, and the things that are yet to come, or the things that will happen after these things. And so the first chapter sums up the things that John saw, that vision of Jesus, of the glorified Christ. And then Jesus has him scribe in chapters two and three letters to seven different churches that existed in Asia Minor at the time John was on Patmos. And you see throughout these seven different churches in chapters two and three, seven distinct characteristics um, that you can probably see in any churches you may have attended at this point. Different types of ministry, different successes, different failures. But they also seem to potentially outline the history of the church globally as we go through the church age before this ultimate tribulation period comes. And at the end of those seven churches, you see the Church of Philadelphia and the Church of Laodicea. You see one that is very missionary-minded in the Church of Philadelphia that are promised because of their mission statement and their work and the way that they have pursued Christ and his gospel. And to let others hear about it, that they are promised to be withheld from the tribulation period. And then the Church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church, that seems to just not get it. They use Jesus' name in their ministry, but they're not really preaching the gospel. They are teaching a false teaching. 
They are not sharing the true ministry, and Jesus stands outside of that church and knocks, begging to get in, and the church is not letting him in because they're not letting the truth in, even though they're using his name. And that is the the picture that we have of when Jesus is in the Gospels when he says, there are many that will come to me and say, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? And Jesus will look at them and say, I never knew you. That reminds me of the church of Laodicea, this church that's using Jesus's name, but not teaching and preaching the actual gospel and not making a true impact in the world for what's supposed to be the truth of God's word and the revelation of God's word. And then we see that phrase after these things starts chapter four, which is the Greek phrase metatauta. And it goes right back to chapter one when Jesus told John, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and things that will happen after these things. That phrase starts chapter four, and we get a vision of heaven. John is caught up to heaven, and he's brought up to the throne room, and he sees the church sitting there before the scroll is opened. And there's this scroll that we can't really understand. We don't really see what's written on the scroll. But we do know that nobody's worthy to open it until Jesus shows up and he's able to open the scroll and the church is sitting there in awe and John is waiting for this to happen. And as he breaks open the first seal, the Antichrist shows up on the scene, the rider on the white horse, bringing peace to the world. And so this brings us back to Daniel chapter nine. Daniel chapter nine at the end says the 70th week of Daniel, the last week of biblical prophecy, the last seven years that need to be fulfilled, says he will set and confer, he will confirm a covenant with many for, for one week or seven years. This is that final seven years of prophecy, and it begins with the Antichrist showing up as the first seal breaks open, and he you know, confirms that covenant with Israel among many nations and brings peace to the world as people start to follow this political leader, and the seven years are ushered in. But before that first seal was opened, we already saw the church in heaven, which alludes to the idea of the rapture happening before the tribulation period. And the first three and a half years seem great. There's peace on earth. There's a treaty with Israel and the rest of the world. This great deceiver who has come to the earth as a a wonderful peacemaker. And people are following him and loving him. The economy is great. Things are just happening and the world is in a good spot. At the same time, there's two witnesses that crop up that appear to be Elijah and Moses, and they are preaching the gospel. And out of their ministry, it's likely that we have the sealing of the 144,000. 144,000 would appear to be Jewish men, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, are stamped with the Holy Spirit and sealed by God with a seal on their foreheads, who then Now we have the two witnesses and the 144,000 preaching the gospel to the earth. And we actually see a sea, it says a multitude of people that can't be counted come to faith in Christ during this first portion of the tribulation period, the first three and a half years. But at the three and a half year mark, a lot of stuff goes down and practically all hell breaks loose. At that three and a half year mark, halfway through the tribulation, we see a lot of different events. One, And they're in no particular order um, that we can tell. We don't know at which order these events are going to take place. But we see the two witnesses are confronted by the Antichrist. 
they are killed by the Antichrist and the world rejoices. They don't even bury the body. They leave it in the streets and they celebrate. And then three days later, the whole world sees them resurrected and ascend into heaven. Also around that halfway mark, the Antichrist receives a fatal head wound and miraculously recovers from it, creating this sort of faux resurrection and this fake miracle that represents this false Christ coming back to life and performing his own miracle that allows people to worship him. This Antichrist also seems to have a right-hand man, the false prophet. And at this three-and-a-half-year mark, he's had this fake resurrection. The two witnesses have been killed. He also sets up, the false prophet sets up an image of the Antichrist in the temple and stops the daily sacrifices from happening. So somewhere before this time, a new temple needs to exist. We don't know when that's going to happen. But the sacrifices stop and everyone is forced to worship the Antichrist at this point. And part of that is receiving a mark on your right hand or forehead. Uh, and the image of the beast that's set up in the temple is also given power to speak. I don't know how that works. But who knows? There's lots of weird, crazy technology. It could be something natural with the technology we have now or something supernatural and demonic. We don't really know. But at this point, the treaty has been broken with Israel. And the Antichrist wants to take out his wrath on the Jews. And as he attempts to do that, many of them escape and flee into the wilderness, likely to the city of Petra, which is in Jordan. And for some reason, he cannot get to whoever the remnant is in the wilderness. And he can't get to these Jews. So who does he take it out on? Anyone else that has been affected by the ministry of the 144,000 and the two witnesses, anyone who follows Christ during this period of time that the Antichrist can get to, he is going to come after and persecute with all of his might. And at the same time, all of these different judgments are raining down from heaven. And we've seen the worst of these judgments in the last chapter that we went through in chapter 16, the seven bold judgments, which are the worst of the worst. And at the end of that, we see the return of Christ, which is what we're going to get to next week in chapter 19. So what is chapter 17 and 18? Well, now that we've seen the final judgments and the view from heaven, God again, or the Holy Spirit, takes John into the earth and gives us a little bit more detail about what's actually happening during the tribulation period. And he gives us some more that we can add to the story that we've seen. We are now at the ultimate climax right before Jesus returns. So let's open up in Revelation chapter 17. So then one of the angels who had the seven bulls came and talked to me saying, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So first off, this is what John is experiencing chronologically. This doesn't mean that this, after the final judgment, this next thing happens. This is what John's experience was chronologically. And he's writing down what he experienced in order, but it's not necessarily the order of the tribulation period. So after the final judgments, the next thing that happens is Christ's return. But God is taking John back in time a little bit to give him an overview of what's happening in the tribulation period. So we're going to see that. And so what he sees first is a harlot who sits on many waters. It says, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication 
and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with wine, with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman, which is the harlot, on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having her hand, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication, and on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Now the term harlot, or there are lots of different names. I'm not going to go through them all, depending on which translation you're reading. I'm in the New King James, but harlot is a reference consistent through scripture of idolatry, false worship. And so this is the false religion, the system itself, the false religion itself. And so this is what the harlot is who's riding on the beast. It's a false religion. And her name is Mystery Babylon the Great and the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And she's the mother of harlots. So the great harlot riding on the beast actually has offspring that represent multiple false religions. And so this is talking about the fact that out of Babylon, like we talked about early in Genesis, since the Tower of Babel and all of the divination and astrology, all of that stuff came from Babylon. And the world's false pagan worships have all stemmed from Babylon pagan practices. And they've existed throughout the world since. And so she's the initiator, the starter, all false religions, but they all fall under the woman, this harlot. And she's riding the beast. And she also holds the cup in the wine of wrath, basically. So what she's holding, what that cup is filled with is the blood of the saints. So any false religion has always seemed to oppose Christianity and has caused the persecution and the death of much of Christianity and caused a lot of martyrs uh, all around the world. And so that's what you're seeing. In verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So John's looking at this, and he can't believe what he's seeing. He can't believe how people have fallen and worshipped this false faith. He can't believe the amount of people that have been martyred because of it. And he's just astonished. And his jaw is hitting the floor. And we pick up in verse 7 where the, we're getting a little bit of the meaning. All right. So the heading here is the meaning of the woman and the beast. So, but the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her which has the seven heads and the ten horns. So the angel is now going to give us an explanation. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And these who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. So... Right? That's pretty straightforward. It makes perfect sense. No. Um, So what's happening here is he's saying there is this beast that this woman rides, right? And the beast was, 
has existed, doesn't right now, but will again. What is he talking about? So the most likely scenario is that the beast, which we'll get into as we kind of see this, we've talked about it before, this is has seven heads and ten horns. It's the same beast from Daniel 7, the same picture of the statue in Daniel 2. It's the same picture of the beast in Revelation 13, seven heads, ten horns. The seven heads are representative of seven great empires that have oppressed Israel. And they are Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the seventh being the final kingdom of the Antichrist, right? Now the seventh one, the beast gets a fatal head wound and then returns to life. So he, he was, and then he wasn't, and then he is again, and he comes and resurrects. So that's kind of what is being talked about here. And so verse 9, here's the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the women sits. I want to talk about this for a brief second. So there's seven mountains on which she sits. Now, this verse has been isolated and taken out of context. And Rome is a city that sits on seven hills. And so there are a lot of commentators. There are a lot of people who have taken this out of context and talked about the Vatican and Rome and um, the Catholic Church. And because the city sits on seven hills, that this is clearly talking about Rome. There's reference to a revived Roman Empire in the final kingdom that the Antichrist will rule. So clearly this looks like Rome. If you take that out of context, um, you can clearly come to that conclusion. That's not the conclusion I come to. I'm not stating that I'm 100% right. But that's not the conclusion I come to because the next verse says this. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. perdition. So that language is extremely confusing. I'm sure you caught yourself going, what the heck is John saying? So here's what John's saying. The seven mountains, mountains are also used as an idiom in scripture for kingdoms. Just like horns are, mountains are also typically used as power structures and kingdoms. So again, there are seven mountains, right? Five, and in the next verse it says there are seven kings or kingdoms, five which have already happened, right? Let's read it again. Five have fallen, one is, and uh, one, the other, has not yet come. So at the time John is writing this, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, all five of those kingdoms have fallen. Rome is. Rome exists. The kingdom of Rome had existed. And now there's a seventh one that is yet to come. So John is clearly painting the picture that this is a future event from the time he's sitting on Patmos. So five have gone. One is at the moment John is writing this, which is the Roman Empire. And then there is still one empire yet to come that will have 10 horns or 10 kings that follow under the Antichrist, right? 
And then you get to this weird, what is he talking about? The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth. All right, so the seventh one we know is the future kingdom that the Antichrist rules, right? Well, what happens? The Antichrist gets a fatal head wound and comes back to life. So he's the seventh, and then he isn't, and then he comes back to life and is the eighth. And there are a lot of commentators that assume that when he comes back to life, he is no longer just being guided by evil, no longer being guided by Satan, but actually fully possessed um, and has become like himself basically a new entity, um, no longer controlled or guided by demonic pressure, but actually not just influenced, but has become possessed. And is now when you hear him speak, you're actually hearing the voice of demonic possession. And so that's potentially what that looks like. And so the 10 horns, which you saw, remember the beast has seven heads and 10 horns. The 10 horns, which you saw are 10 Kings who have received no kingdom as of yet. So again, Rome exists. This isn't Rome. This is a future kingdom. There are 10 Kings that haven't received their kingdom yet, but they receive authority for one hour or basically for a short period of time as kings with the beast. So they will rule alongside the Antichrist. There are one, they are one of, these are of one mind and will give their power and authority to the beast. So even though they rule at the same time as the Antichrist, they basically give their authority to him and he is, he is the ultimate ruler at this time, even though he has 10 sort of subdivisions of the world that are being controlled by these other 10 kings. These will make war with the lamb. So this was talked about last week. One of the bull judgments, there were demons that looked like frogs that came up out of the depths and they infused or it guided the 10 kings to make war with Christ and gather in the battle of Armageddon, gather in the valley of Jezreel by Mount, Mount Megiddo. So this is talking about the same thing. And the lamb will overcome them. So when Jesus returns... They don't have a chance for he is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. So that's what we're looking at. Then he said to me, the waters, which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So basically this false religion is all encompassing across the globe. That's all that that means. And the 10 horns, which you saw on the beast, will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into the hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman which you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So this is kind of, this is what's happening, right? If we go back to our explanation of what's happening. So the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. Now the Antichrist comes and he rises to power. Now the church has been removed from the earth at this point. So there's a void in the world for spiritual guidance. Out of that likely rises some sort of religious movement um, that people cling to because we've just seen massive tragedy, right? Now the Antichrist will probably utilize whatever faults hope or false religion that becomes a unifying message to the world to help gain his power. But at that three and a half year mark, he breaks his treaty with Israel. 
The false prophet sets up an idol of the Antichrist in the temple, and he causes the whole world to worship him. So at this point, he tramples on the false religion. Now, at this po- before this, the false religion was riding the beast. It was sort of guiding where the beast was going. But at this point, he turns over and he tramples on the harlot, and he gets rid of the false religion, and he causes the world to just worship him only. And now we're in the worst three and a half years of human existence in the Great Tribulation, the final three and a half years. So that's what Revelation 17 is talking about. It's talking about the religious system of Babylon. Now, there are multiple ideas about whether or not chapter 17 and chapter 18 are talking about the same Babylon, or if they're two separate things, because chapter 18 is going to talk about political and economic power, where chapter 17 was talking about religious power. In chapter 17, the harlot, the woman, the false religion is trampled by the beast. In chapter 18, the world and power, economic structure and political structure is destroyed by Jesus. So they have two different ends. They have two different means of power, um, but they seem to come out of at least the same region of the world. They may or may not be connected. I don't really have an answer for you. I don't have, um, I haven't made up my mind on whether or not I think they're the same thing or not, but they, there are clear differences in this structure, and they also seem to be talking about two different time periods. So the end of the, the woman, the end of the harlot, the mystery, the great Babylon, mother of harlots, she's trampled, it seems to be at the three and a half year mark when the Antichrist's image is set up in the temple. And then chapter 18, we're talking about the end of the political and economic structure set up by man or set up by the Antichrist. So this appears to be the very last piece before the tribulation period ends. So now let's get into chapter 18 and talk about that a little bit. After these things, so again, that phrase metatauta, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Now, birds are often used to talk about, like, demonic forces. Um, If you think about the parable of the sower and the seed that Jesus told, he said, you know, one of, a piece of that parable was he scattered seed, um, and then the birds came up and took the seed. That's the demonic forces robbing the people of God's word and taking it out of their hearts. So birds are often used in a negative sense, unless they're talking about a specific bird, like an eagle or a dove. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, uh, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. So there's this economic system that has caused people to become rich and drunk basically on greed. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, and lest you receive of her plagues. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. So this is interesting because we're talking about the final Babylon. Now the Bible, you can sum it up in a few different ways. One is the Bible is God's way of revealing himself to his creation. That's the most simplest terms that you can use to talk about the Bible. The next, um, you can talk about a tale of two cities, Jerusalem and Babylon. They're the two cities mentioned most in scripture. 
Jerusalem is the city of peace. It's the city where God is supposed to ultimately reign. It is God's place. Babylon is man's city. And they're both, they both are mentioned first in Genesis, and they both have a different type of ending in Revelation. And the constant battle between paganism and following God in between from Genesis to Revelation is the fight that happens. And it's a spiritual battle all the way through. And so at this point, you're looking at the end of the city of Babylon. It's interesting that verse 5 says, For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Because the first mention of Babylon is the Tower of Babel in Genesis 10 and 11, when Nimrod gathers the people of the world after the flood and ignores God's rule to go and be fruitful and fill and populate the earth and gathers everybody together. And they start this city and they build this tower to themselves, proclaiming their victory basically over God's dominion. And they create a tower and their goal is to get the tower to reach the heavens. Right. And so here we have the very first mention of Babylon is people coming together, ignoring God's word, ignoring God's rule, trying to proclaim victory over him, trying to reach the heavens. Here we have the final Babylon and their sins reach heaven, just like the Tower of Babel. And so render to her just as she rendered to you and repay her double according to her works in the cup which she has mixed. Mix double for her. So God's wrath is going to pour out on the final Babylon. In the measure, she has glorified herself and lived luxuriously. In the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. So the interesting thing is that she points herself out as Babylon the great is not a widow. Um, there might be some sort of reference to Hosea where this Israel, um, the book of Hosea is all about God's love for Israel, despite her constantly leaving him and sinning against him and giving into worldly pleasure and paganism and God's continual pursuit of her. And there might be some sort of reference to that story um, in comparison to this harlot and her basically Babylon saying or stating that uh, I'm no widow. I've been in power. I don't need I don't need God. I don't need back and forth. I am victorious all the time. I don't have sorrow. It's all about the culmination of its own power and its own victory over God. And so maybe that's where that's coming from. He says, therefore, her plagues will come in one day, meaning in a short period of time, death and mourning and famine. And she will be utterly burned with fire for strong is the Lord who judges her. So we're talking about being burned in fire, but the ultimate end, um, very similar to the Sodom and Gomorrah story. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her, And weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. 
It went from one day to one hour. So clearly, John is using figurative language to talk about this, is, this happens in a very short period of time, the end of Babylon. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her. No one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon, and incense, and frankincense oil, and frankincense wine, and oil, fine flour, and wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses, and chariots, and bodies, and souls of men. So even slavery at the end, bodies and souls of men. So basically all sorts of luxur luxury, luxurious items. This is a decadent society that is created by the Antichrist. And so that's what we're looking at here in this moment. The fruit that your soul longed has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who have become rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that is clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who traveled by the ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? This is the ultimate destruction of the final Babylon. They threw dust on their heads. They cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, the great city on which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. So all of the merchants, all of the people who have decided to participate in this economy, who have taken the mark, are now seeing the destruction of their wealth. And because they took that temporary pleasure to participate in the world economy, they are now eternally destroyed. And they're wailing and weeping over this understanding. But in verse 20, we get a different perspective. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and your holy apostles and prophets for her. God has avenged you on her. So all of those who have been destroyed or been persecuted or been martyred or have been made fun of or whatever have been the butt of the joke for this system of the world that has come against the followers of Jesus now are in from a picture of heaven, they get to rejoice at God's final justice, um, finally taking out the sin and wickedness from the world that has come against the Christ followers. And so finally we have this piece of information. I want to read just this, this one verse um, before I finish the rest of chapter 18. So then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with the violence the great city of Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. So we have this picture in heaven of a great angel throwing down this huge, a millstone was like a big gigantic stone that they would use to grind um, like wheat and flour and stuff to, to, to make different grains into different foods. So you see this angel throwing this big giant stone down at the earth. And this is sort of a, a metaphor or an idiom for what the destruction of Babylon is going to be. Interestingly, Jeremiah, towards the end of his writings in the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 51, uh, verses 60, and then 63 through 64, read this. Jeremiah wrote in a book all the disasters that should come upon Babylon. 
all these words that are written concerning Babylon. That's verse 60. Verse 63 and 64 of chapter 51 of Jeremiah. When you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates and say, thus shall sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her and they shall become exhausted. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. So you see an angel throwing a big giant millstone. In Jeremiah, you see whoever, when they're finished reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates. Now, if this Babylon isn't just a generic system, but actually represents the reborn city of Babylon, then it would be right on the Euphrates River. Um, So there could be an interesting correlation there between Jeremiah and Revelation. And I just wanted to share that with you before we finish chapter 18. So the sound of the harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpets shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore, and the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived, and in her was found the blood of the prophets and saints and all who were slain on the earth. So Babylon is this ultimate, well, it, while it may be an, an individual city, it's also representative of the entire system, religiously and economically, that has caused, and politically, that has caused devastation and destruction for the people who follow Christ, and their judgment is poured out on them. And after this, we see the return of Jesus. Now, there is one other overview of this. Um, Zechariah chapter 5, verses 5 through 11 sort of give you an overview and a previous vision of what chapter 17 and 18 look like. So let's take a look at it. Then the angel who was speaking to me came forward and said to me, look up and see what is appearing. So this is a vision that Zechariah is having back in the Old Testament times. This is about, I think, 500, around 500 years before Jesus. I asked, what is it? He replied, it's a basket. A basket is often representative of commerce. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Then the cover of lead was raised, and in the basket sat a woman. He said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed its lead cover down on it. So we see a basket, which often represents commerce. He opens up the basket, and he sees a woman who represents wickedness. Think about the woman riding the beast in chapter 17. And then chapter 18 being that system of commerce and and politics, right? Now, he looks at it and he shoves the woman back into the basket and covers the basket. So now the woman is hidden or gone or has been shoved down, just like the picture in Revelation 17 and 18. So there is a woman who rides the beast and creates this false religious system. She is halfway through the tribulation period destroyed and taken down and people are forced to worship the image, but the economic structure and political structure still exist. This is the same picture. Then I looked up and there before me were two women with wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork, which is an unclean bird in Levitical law. And they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel 
who was speaking to me, he replied, to the country of Babylonia to build a house for it. When the house is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. So when the time comes, that economic and political system will be put in its place. The woman will rise up out of the basket, and then at some point she'll be covered back in, and the basket will still remain until it's destroyed at the end. So that same vision gives us the same depiction of Revelation in 17 and 18, which if you read Zechariah with, without Revelation 17 and 18, you would go, what is he talking about? This makes no sense. But together, they create a pretty neat picture. Now, there's one more piece of information I want to just sort of feed you because there have been misinterpretations of this destruction of Babylon. Because Isaiah chapter 13 proclaims the destruction of Babylon. I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but ultimately Isaiah 13 predicts the destruction of Babylon. And it predicts the destruction of Babylon in one day. Now, two other sets of verses bring this together to bring some confusion. Now, as we've seen throughout Scripture, there is usually some sort of partial fulfillment that gives us an idea of what's going to happen in the future, and the future is the ultimate fulfillment. What we've just read in Revelation 17 and 18 is the ultimate fulfillment of the destruction of Babylon, where there won't even be able to use the stones to build anymore, right? But there was a previous thing that happened in Babylon that some commentators sort of misuse. It was a partial fulfillment because Babylon was overthrown in a day, but it wasn't destroyed. In Daniel chapter 5, the king's son, Belshazzar, is ruling over Babylon because the king, Nabonidus, is out doing war stuff outside of the city of Babylon. So Belshazzar has been put in control. He's sitting in the palace. He's having a good time. He has no idea it's coming. And then there's a hand that show, handwriting shows up on the wall. Um, and he can't understand it, and he can't interpret it. People tell him, well, maybe Daniel can. So they bring Daniel in. Belshazzar says, if you can interpret this for me, I'll make you the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And Daniel says, don't worry about it. I'll interpret it for you. But based on what it says, you don't need to offer me anything. Because it was predicting the destruction, not the destruction, but the overthrowing of Babylon. Daniel basically knew that the, the Medo-Persian Empire was coming and they were going to take over Babylon. And they did it that night. So what happened is Cyrus the Great, who brought the Medes and the Persians together, and he held, brought the Persians up and lifted them up over the Medes and he made them one single empire, they decided to wage war or to take over Babylon. In Babylon, there was a moat that made it really hard to penetrate or to wage war against them. So what Cyrus did is he had his soldiers divert the water from the Euphrates into a different canal to reduce the waters around the moat of Babylon so that it was only thigh high. And then all of his soldiers came into Babylon and they sieged the city without ever having a battle. And they took over the city without destroying it in a single night. And it happened that night in Daniel chapter 5. And so that's a partial fulfillment because the city wasn't destroyed, but it was taken over in a day. Now, ultimately, in the future, when the time is right, the basket will be put in place in Babylon. And we'll see the ultimate fulfillment of Revelation 17 and 18. 
and of Isaiah 13 of the destruction of Babylon, but we see that partial fulfillment. Now, the interesting thing about that is when Cyrus takes over, Daniel shows Cyrus the scroll of Isaiah. Because in the scroll of Isaiah, which, just so you know, Isaiah was written, and Isaiah, Isaiah died 150 years before Cyrus was born. But Isaiah 44 has some interesting words about Cyrus, and Daniel showed it to him. So this is towards the end of Isaiah 44. Um, the last portion is Judah will be restored starting in verse 24, but I'm going to read you the one that, verse 28 says this, who says of Cyrus, Cyrus is named, remember Isaiah wrote this, he died 150 years before Cyrus was born, he is my shepherd and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Cyrus, King Cyrus was the one who gave Zerubbabel in, in the book of Ezra, the, the ability to go rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So in the book of Daniel, Daniel shows Cyrus the scroll of Isaiah that was written way before Cyrus shows up. And he's written, he's named Cyrus will be the one to decree that the temple will be rebuilt. And Cyrus lives up to that prophecy. So that was pretty cool. I just wanted to share that with you. But it's a partial fulfillment of the ultimate end because Babylon wasn't completely destroyed as predicted in Isaiah 13 or as predicted in Revelation 17 and 18. So we saw a, a sort of picture of Babylon's fall in Daniel chapter 5 and in Isaiah 44. But the ultimate fulfillment of that is in Revelation just like you see in history, a partial fulfillment of what the Antichrist will look like in the intertestamental period with Antiochus Epiphanes and him setting up an idol in the temple and his ultimate fulfillment being in the book of Revelation. So, uh, and again, in scripture, a partial picture of that in Genesis with Nimrod setting up a monument to his victory over God, which is the Tower of Babel, and the ultimate fulfillment of that being in Revelation in the future when the Antichrist or the false prophet sets up a vision or an idol of the Antichrist in the temple. So to be consistent with the way that scripture is read, God's prophecies will be completely fulfilled and a partial fulfillment is justification for what will happen in the future, but it's, it's not enough to twist the words and make, try to make, don't twist what prophecy says into your vision of it and say that it's been completed, like some commentators have done with the fall of Babylon in 539 BC, because it's not a full picture, and John tells us all about that in Revelation 17 and 18. So God's words will not return void, is the point. So when we look at God's word, we know that he has fulfilled prophecy with incredible accuracy, and we can expect it to be completely fulfilled. And the book of Revelation points us to the ultimate complete fulfillment of God's plan, um, which gives us a great glimpse and view of who God is and who his character is, especially his justice and righteousness and holiness and how he is intolerant of sin. Um, but thankfully, we have the gospel and we have the ability to avoid the, right, the, 
the wrath and the justice and the um, the harsh parts of God's nature because we have the mercy and grace of Jesus and his blood on this side of the story. And so thankfully, we can be really happy about that and want to share that with others. Um, let's pray as we conclude our study this evening. Father God, I just want to say thank you for your word and just how powerful it is, how much you've fulfilled how much we can have trust in it because you continue to show over and over again that you know history before it happens. And because you have fulfilled your promises in the past, we know that your, your promises will be fulfilled in the future. God, I am excited to get to the next chapters in Revelation because it is your ultimate victory over the earth. It is your son coming back and returning and setting up his kingdom in victory. And God, it is wonderful to know that we sit on your side. You tell us in the Psalms, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that is so true. And I ask that we can find in our lives the strength and the ability and the knowledge, and most importantly, the humility to surrender to you and your authority and your power so that we can know we're on your team. And we can move forward in victory as we are about to find out you win the ultimate battle. God, I pray that that gives us strength and motivation and encouragement as we move through the rest of this week um, and gives us the ability to share what we have with those who need to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen.